Lord, the heart cry of the psalmist comes through in that song. Lord, grant me your righteousness that I may see your face. Lord, we have the fulfillment of that prayer in our salvation to celebrate this morning. You have granted us your righteousness in our Lord Jesus. The righteousness of Christ now clothes every believer in this room. The pure white robes of Jesus Christ's own righteousness, His perfect law-keeping power, now imputed to every believer. And now we can see your face. And even as we see in a glass dimly, and though our sight is by faith, we walk not by the sight of the physical any longer. We are all people the most privileged and infinitely more so as we look forward to being made transformed into the image of Jesus Christ ever more so each day looking forward to beholding you in glory we have yet to dream of. I thank you for these truths that the blood of our precious Savior has purchased for every believing heart here today. And now, Lord, as we transition in our service here to give you glory in another way, as this psalm has said, to recount your deeds, I pray that hearts would be encouraged and lifted up, emboldened and strengthened, God, by the testimony of your faithfulness among those who we fellowship with. What a privilege. Lord, we just pray a special blessing on Tony and Carol as they share today. And pray for an anointing and spirit to rest upon them, that their words might be yours, that they might reach deep within souls, Lord, who need to hear of the goodness of God. We thank you for this time together. May you be glorified in every moment of this service. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What is our uh, testimony service? And so at this time, I'd like to invite uh, Tony and Carol Kramer, or whichever you wants to start or however you want to do it, feel free to come forward and to share some of their story with you and how God's faithfulness has been apparent to them. Thank you guys so much for sharing. against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for in his, in his invisible attrib attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools this uh, verse these verses have really impacted me the last couple weeks as I was preparing for my testimony first because according to these verses who needs evidence that God exists and I've been convicted recently that as I tried to express my faith and share my faith with uh, co-workers and friends um, I should not be in a position of giving them evidence of God's existence because they know that God exists. Um, because if I do that, that's sinful because God should not be on trial. We should not allow the people to decide 
whether God exists or not because they, they know that he does exist. And then at the very end, it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This was me. Even though I became a Christian in 1998, I became a born-again Christian in 1998, uh, I was approximately 30 years old. 30 years prior to that, I can honestly say that I was an absolute fool. Sounds a little harsh, but if we are to believe the scripture, it's true. I was living my life in absolute denial of who God is. So my story, I grew up on a farm in a small farming community in, in uh, northwest Iowa. And I'm the youngest of eight children. And the town that we, the little community was predominantly a Catholic, Catholic uh, town. And um, my parents sent me to a Catholic elementary school. And Catholicism in our community was our God. It was, it was everything in our community. Um, the way Catholicism was modeled to me was very confusing because I can honestly say I knew who God was, but what was being modeled to be my, my parents, my brothers and sisters, and my friends was completely conflicting. Um, the only time I would see my parents pray was when we would pray before meals and after meals. We never prayed in public. I never saw my parents read a Bible. My parents never, ever had a devotion with me. Um, if I was struggling with certain issues, my parents never took me to scripture to point me the, to the truth. Um, it's almost as if they sent me off to Catholic elementary expecting the priests and the nuns to do it for me. Um, so my understanding, even though I knew God existed, my understanding of God was in a brick building, whether it be the Catholic elementary school or the church. And everything outside of that, I was able to live my life in total defiance. Um, I was a pretty good kid. You know, in today's standards, you know, I thought I was a pretty good kid. But, you know, as I was growing up, I had did my fair share of, of doing drugs, um, drinking a lot, uh, being pretty promiscuous. Um, and I remember absolutely nothing of my Catholic teachings, absolutely nothing. It's almost like everything that was taught to me went in one ear and right out the other because I just, I really didn't even care. Um, I literally remember sitting in church prior to, because we go into an elementary school, once a month we had a, a school mass and we would have confession before mass and I would sit in the pew inventing sins that I could tell the priest because I thought I was such a good person. Never dawned on me to repent from my sin of lying to the priest of inventing <laughs> sins. <laughs> but all along I can say that God was with me. Um, in the 12 years or so that I was in school, there were um, three of my classmates uh, perished in uh, farming accidents and when I was in seventh grade I was actually in a farm accident as well and I have no clue to this day how I survived and um, as I got older I also was in a situation at a rock concert where um, anybody knows Motley Crue I was at a Motley Crue concert 
Um, I literally was on the floor, prone on the floor with people standing on top of me. And um, I have no idea how I got out of that situation. I can honestly say that God was with me the whole time. So heading into college, um, I just pretty much followed that same path, thinking that I was a pretty good kid, but knowing differently, um, doing the drugs, doing the drinking, and um, it was my sophomore year, so it had been the fall of 1987. Um, my, my opinion of who God was was kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus. So I would pray to him for certain things. And I remember this particular time I prayed to him for a girlfriend. And um, it was really important to me because I was moving through life and I didn't have anybody special in my life. And Halloween was coming up and there was a very strange turn of events that allowed me to go to this party and um, that's where I met my wife Carol and what's really interesting about it is that she was dressed up as an angel so <laughs> it was meant to be <laughs> so anyhow Carol and I dated for about four years and um, one day I decided to call her on the phone and, and propose to her how many people do you know propose that over the phone? <laughs> but uh, I had a good excuse. I was about 10,000 miles away at that time. I was in the Marine Corps, and I got activated, and I was in the first Gulf War. So I called her from Kuwait City and uh, proposed to her over the, over the phone. She said yes. And uh, October 26, 1991, was um, the best day of, uh, of Carol's life. <laughs> So I'm extremely pleased, you know, God was taking care of me. God gave me the love of my life, and uh, she is my best friend, and um, gave me two wonderful children, five wonderful children, but two biological children, William and Michael, and then uh, we adopted three children, Tyson, Eileen, and Jackson, since then. Um, but our married life was pretty strained because the one thing that, the one wedge that was always between Carol and me was religion. Uh, Carol was Methodist, I was Catholic, uh, never really knew where to go to church. And um, for some reason, um, in Easter of 1998, I mentioned to Carol that we should go to a different church. We should just try something different because it was important to me to go to church. And I believe God was working in me at that moment. And um, I had suggested that we go to Lakewood E Free Church in, in Baxter, and she agreed to it. And um, I, I really believe, looking back at it, that that was probably, even though God was with me and following me and waiting for me and calling me into his family, that was probably the moment where it really started to sink in, that there was something different out there than, than the Catholic Church that I had grown up in. Um, I do remember Easter service at Lakewood was completely different than anything I had known. Um, I actually was grinding my teeth the whole way because they had drums and electric guitar and it was just so foreign. But I remember walking out of church thinking that I'd be back. And I, I didn't know how, I didn't know when. And then a couple months later, my boss invited me to a Promise Keepers event down in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, thinking I was a good person and thinking that, oh, there'd be something good to go to. I accepted his invitation and we went to the Metrodome and on Friday night, the first speaker um, just spoke directly to me. 
uh, it's almost as if he was saying my name. And I remember um, they had an altar call there. If you've ever been to one of these events, it's, there's thousands of people there and hundreds of people come down for the altar call. Um, I literally had the feeling that the Holy Spirit was just talking directly to me and saying my name. Because I remember the guy saying, you come, you come, you come. And I got up out of my chair and I walked down the steps totally free. It's like I had made my decision sitting in the chair. You know, I didn't have to say a sinner's prayer down front. The decision was already made for me when I got up out of that chair. And um, it was the best walk of my life. Got down front, and they did have a sinner's prayer, but, you know, I had made the decision to accept the, Jesus as the Lord of my life um, in that chair. And um, I can tell you that it was a wonderful feeling. Anybody who is walking away from God your whole life and you think you're running and running and running and God is way back there. You know, for me it was, I turned around and he was just right there. It was like he was following me my whole life. I didn't have to run back to him. He was just right there. And uh, so I get home, I explained all this to Carol. William and Michael were just a couple years old. They didn't really know. Um, and I remember reading the Bible. They gave me a Bible at that time. And it was, you know, when Paul talks about the scales coming from his eyes, for me, it was, it was, that's how it was. I could read the Bible and I could understand it. Prior to that, in my Catholic years, I tried reading the Bible. It just never, it never made sense. Um, so that, to me, is, is absolute proof that the Holy Spirit's uh, living in my life and giving me the discernment to, to understand the Bible. Um, but what's really interesting is the confliction that I had with my Catholic upbringing and then how I was going to lead my family and do I turn my back on my family, my upbringing? And I found out pretty quickly that my friends and my family were not very understanding of my decision. Um, when I told my mom I got baptized, she actually hung up on me. And um, that was very difficult, um, trying to explain to my religious family that I had become a Christian. It was almost as if they took it that I was telling them that they weren't Christian. And I will, you know, I will say that I do believe there are Christians in the Catholic Church, but I don't believe that the Catholic Church makes you a Christian. Um, so that was very difficult. And also, I do believe that when I decided to follow Christ, Satan really stepped up his attacks on, on me and on our family um, because I wasn't passive anymore. I wasn't part of his plan. Uh, suddenly I became his enemy. And even to this day, uh, getting to church with a family of seven is extremely difficult for us. There are days where it's almost like we need to just cut our losses and stay home because Satan is attacking us uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, I know the, um, Marissa had shared a couple months back or a couple weeks back, you know, nothing like what she had gone through, but, but I, I can definitely tell that uh, Satan is constantly, constantly battling me. Um, but I've learned, 
you know, going back to the Catholicism, I've actually learned more about the Catholic Church since I've been out of the Catholic Church than when I was in it. When I said that I had not learned anything, um, it was, you know, my goal was to lead my family and take them to church on Sundays. And initially it was to the Catholic Church. Um, but I started learning that many of the doctrines are just not biblical. And um, so then we decided, Carol and I decided to, to start attending Lakewood Church in Baxter in that fall. And I'm telling you, we jumped in full force. I mean, we got our kids involved in Sunday school. Carol and I were involved in Sunday school and Wednesday night church. And we went through probably, I don't know, four or five, six year period where our, my faith was just growing exponentially. Uh, things were just wonderful. Um, and then I have to admit that probably about three, four years ago, I started falling away from the church. And, uh, you know, I, I really regret uh, not leading my family in the direction that I should have been leading them uh, with job changes and just changes of lifestyle and everything. But again, you know, God was with me because there's a couple people in this audience here that I knew uh, separately. And as I started talking to them, I started asking them where, you know, where do you go to church and where do you go to church? And um, they kept saying, we go to Providence Church, we go to Providence Church. And then I had uh, a couple other people that I was really close to at Lakewood told me that they decided to leave Lakewood because they wanted to go to a much smaller church where there's really good fellowship. And that was just a sign of the Holy Spirit uh, telling me that we were to leave Lakewood and start attending uh, church here. And we've been attending since probably February. And I can honestly say that I look forward to coming every Sunday. I mean, the preaching here is absolutely amazing. Ken, you do a wonderful job. And uh, it's, it's just really been a great blessing for me. And I just really thank you for this opportunity. Um, I could stand up here and tell you all sorts of stories, but it's again, it's not about me. It's about really how Christ has worked in my life. And you know, for anybody who's sitting here in church, especially my children, thinking that just coming to church is good enough, it's not. You do need to make that decision to follow Christ because just attending a brick building is not gonna is not gonna be your answer. All right, well, some of this is gonna be a repeat of what you just heard, but <clears throat> um, I was thought I was a Christian too growing up. I went to a Methodist church, but it was one of those things too where um, you went to church on Sunday, that was all you need to know. I knew it was important. Um, but it was really kind of something my parents made me do. Um, I was on the other side of the Catholic um, divide, I guess. Even though we grew up probably 200 miles apart, um, the community I lived in as well was probably 90% Catholic, and I was that small percentage that wasn't. And you know, at that time for me, it was, okay, well, we can't go out on Friday or on Saturday night until everyone gets done with church. And then I, you know, I had to go to church on Sunday morning when I was really tired and I hated it and just didn't even understand why was our family 
not Catholic because everyone else was. And all I ever really got out of my parents is that my grandparents had a falling out with the church. So whether, you know, even if it was um, doctrinally based, probably not. I'm assuming there was something else, but I never got any, um, never got any details on that. Um, and then I love that most of the guys I dated in high school and cat or in uh, college were Catholic, including Tony. And you know, it really kind of bothered me. I was like, <laughs> I just had this feeling that was not the direction I was supposed to go. But everyone I dated was Catholic, and you had a lot of conflict of um, beliefs there. And so I remember, I do remember talking to my mom one time because my family was very similar to Tony's in that you went to church on Sunday and you left it there. Um, you didn't, we didn't pray. We didn't even pray at meals. Um, I think we had a Bible and was on the shelf. Um, you know, that was, it was just what you did to be, you know, a upstanding member of the community as you went to church. Um, but I do remember having a conversation with my mom one time <coughs> about that. And, and, um, the thing that I do remember her saying that really stuck with me is she's like, Carol, we do not need someone to talk to God for us. We can talk to him directly and like yep that's you know that <clears throat> was a big thing I didn't need a priest to intercede for me I could talk to him so I do thank her for um for letting me know about that so anyway Tony and I um met decided to get married and um we kind of if people would ask you know what church went to and I'm like well we have a mixed marriage <laughs> you know he's Catholic I'm not we couldn't agree on anything, so we didn't go. Um, but then we got pregnant, and <clears throat> um, I kind of started to bargain with him as well. Like, we could raise our kids Catholic, but they had to know what the inside of a non-Catholic church looked like, and you can go, but I'm not going to convert. And, you know, it was that kind of bargaining back and forth, which is, again, not what we should have been doing. So, again, we didn't attend. Um, Will was born then in October and we had to go meet with the priest to do all this and then it got sprung on me that we weren't even going to be able to get Will baptized unless we got remarried. So we actually have been married twice <laughs> um, and I, I throw that out with friends sometimes or people I've met um, who you know kind of know me or know me for a while I'm like oh yeah this is my you know I've had I've been married twice <laughs> I like watching the jaws hit the table. Um, you know, I, that was something we had to do in order to get the kids um, baptized in that church. So anyway, we were still living at Iowa, in Iowa at that time, and a job change brought um, Tony here to Brainerd. Then <clears throat> you heard how Tony became a Christian. We jumped in full force into church, and um, I was invited to go to MOPS, which is Mothers of Preschoolers, and we did Wednesday nights, and we did uh, Sundays. And I remember the pastor... Um, having a newcomers type meal at the church and we talked about things that were important to the Christian faith you know like why do we celebrate Christmas why do we celebrate Easter why did Jesus die on the cross and I'm kind of ticking them off like I know that I know that I know that and then I got to the last one and it was like I was missing the relationship a piece of it so um it it was like finally I had all the pieces put together that that was what I was missing. The whole time I had the head knowledge of what a Christian was. I didn't have the heart knowledge of what he was. So anyway, um, 
I describe my, uh, my path of becoming a born-again Christian, it looks more like a sunrise. Um, I don't have that one defining moment like Tony does, so I kind of have a, sun, uh, a sunrise instead of that flashball moment a lot of people do. Um, about that same time, <clears throat> we had really both uh, started attending Lakewood. Um, we were so hungry to learn more, and we had uh, decided to take a Wednesday night class together. And um, during that time, um, our neighbors, I don't even know how to describe this exactly, if you can't remember all the pieces, but we found out our neighbors were doing foster care. And we kind of got it started talking about that. And um, I told Tony, I finally admitted to Tony that that had been something that had been actually on my heart for a long time. I can remember working at, my, at the flower shop back in Iowa and uh, my coworker coming in and talking about foster care. I'm like, at that time, we had just been married, didn't have any kids, but that was something that just stuck with me the whole time. And so finally, Tony and I talked about it a little bit, and it was something that had been kind of in his heart as well. And so we started attending church, and then um, we realized that the teacher of our Wednesday night class was actually the foster care licensor. And so um, we started talking to him, and um, we started just putting the pieces together and we realized that God had been working on us for a long time together and separately before. Um, God was in control of me hearing about it, our neighbors being foster care parents. We remodeled our house and put in a certain kind of windows that had we not put in that kind of window, we would not have been able to um, be foster parents. Um, and during the time we were going through all the classes, um, Dwayne, who was the, the licensor at the time, kept talking, you know, kind of as an example. Well, we have this little, um, or we, have, we know this mom, she's going to have a baby, and we don't know if he's going to have any health concerns. We'll probably be putting him with, you know, a certain parent um, th because that foster parent has some um, nursing background. And the whole time, it's like, no, that baby is supposed to be here. He's supposed to be at our house. I don't know why. You know, we weren't licensed. We, we had no ability to have that child there. But for some reason in my heart, we knew it was supposed to be um, at our house. So anyway, we, we got licensed. And um, I had this very, you know, God was just talking very loudly to me at that time. And he told me, nope. Your first two foster kids are going to be a 10 and a 5-year-old girl. I'm like, okay, <laughs> wasn't ready for that. And, you know, about a week later, yep, a 10 and a 5-year-old girl. They were the first ones that were at our house. Um, scared to death about it, but um, Karen and Suzette came, and they actually lived with us about 15 months. It was supposed to be about a two-month stay, and they lived, for seven, or lived with us 17, 15 to 17 months. Um, and then, while I think Karen and Suzette were there, Michael was like one or two, still in the crib, and I was changing the sheets on his bed one day. And again, God was talking loud and clear, and he's like, Carol, you've got to have more babies. And I'm like, uh, no, we already made that decision. 
we had decided we were done with two. Um, foster care, you know, they could come and go, but we were only going to have two. And I thought, well, you know, it's the biological clock thing, and um, I'm getting old. Maybe that's, maybe I think I need to have more kids. So anyway, just kind of pushed that out of my, out of my thought. I'm like, no, we're, we're done. Um, probably within a week after that, Dwayne called, wanted to stop by, see how foster care was going since this was our first placement. So we talked about that a little bit. And then his next question was, would you consider adopting um, a child? <laughs> we're like, okay, where did that come from? And the child he was talking about was that baby that he had been mentioning the time that we were in the adoption process. Um, they had a plan at that time where if they didn't think the kids would be able to go back to their biological families, they wanted it in, into an adoption home as quickly as possible so they don't have to shuffle kids around. So Tony and I prayed about it and kind of like, you know, what's one more? So um, we agreed to uh, do a foster adopt um, situation. So Tyson came to live with us in about September that year. Um, he was about exactly six months old. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, we went worked through that worked through that process, and um, about a year and a half later, the social worker called and she's like, "Well, um, Tyson's mom and dad are pregnant again. Do you want to adopt another baby?" So again, we had to to pray about it, and um, we didn't even have Tyson's adoption done, so we knew it could still be kind of a, a back and forth, or we would, we, there was a possibility we'd have to give them back. But we agreed that, you know, family members should be kept together. So we um, got Eileen, and she was born the weekend of Tony's parents' 50th anniversary, so we missed that, but it was kind of nice because Eileen and I got to spend a couple days by herself home <laughs> without everyone else. So anyway, we got um, Tyson's adoption done. We Two years later, Eileen came along, and within a year, we were able to get her adoption finished. And um, so this had happened, got two kids, and I actually um, would kind of watch the Crowing County and state prison records just to kind of see if their birth parents were in or out or if there was possibility of more kids, and nope. And I wasn't here, God talking to me anymore. So anyway, after about three years of waiting, got rid of all the baby stuff, decided we're done. We had four kids. And it was right before Christmas in 2004, I got a social call from the social worker again and said, oh, did you know that your kids' birth parents are pregnant again? Like, how would I know that? Um, so anyway, and then the question always comes up. Um, do you want to adopt? Do you want this baby too? And that was, you know, my first thought is yes, we want them all together, but I always tell the social worker that we need to wait because I figure Tony needs to at least weigh in or have a, a voice in the, the decision. And I remember that day um, sitting down and just looking through the Bible, trying to find some verses of, of comfort. And you know, I can't even tell you which ones I read. But what I came with that day is that if I know what's right and don't do it, it's a major sin in my life that I wouldn't be able to live with. Um, so anyway, six weeks later, Jackson um, arrived. And um, we've been very blessed. And, um, you know, it was something 
that we thought we were in control of our family size. You know, we were going to have four kids or two kids. We were going to have toys. I remember that conversation. Two kids. We could have toys. We could sit in a booth at a restaurant. Um, you can buy a normal size car. Um, <laughs> two kids sounded like the right number. Um, but putting the size of our family into God's hands and into actually someone else's hands, um, some other parents who were, who were just making those decisions, um, it was very, very good for us and the right decision because, um, I don't know, we'd be bored without, without um, the size of family we have. So um, I think now our quiver is full, and uh, there's no chances of any other, any kids on the way. So I don't know. Um, I guess I think we're uh, very blessed to have the relationship we do with Jesus and um, to consider him a friend when I go to pray. And um, I kind of jokingly say that uh, when I get to heaven, my first question is, what were you thinking? <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Thanks again, Tony and Carol, so much for giving glory to the Lord and allowing us to hear some of that amazing, some of those amazing things that the Lord has done in your life. If you would bow your he uh, head with me uh, quickly and in another word of prayer as we transition to Psalm 28. Oh, Heavenly Father, now as we move to your word, God, and we rest our soul on the foundation of your declared truth, I pray that we would find our anchor there that you would give us such encouragement and grace, Lord Jesus, to have faith for tomorrow. Lord, I take an active step to confess this morning there is nothing in my ability or understanding that could ever do justice to the truth that's contained within your word. But Holy Spirit, if you could use this time and use the sharing of the word, Lord, it will be a benefit, I trust, to everyone listening, including myself. And I pray that you would be glorified as the word of God works within the fibers of our soul, of our very being, to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Voice and Hands, a title taken from Psalm 28. I love the imagery that David uses to describe timeless spiritual truths. It's so amazing when you read the Psalms because anyone in any age can immediately relate to the imagery there. After all, everyone has a voice and everyone has a pair of hands. So as David employs these beautiful, ingenious, and intricate imageries, they're both profound and simple at the same time. I have found in these nine verses an inexhaustible well from which to draw understanding of my relationship to God this week. And I'm always amazed when you just have nine verses before you, the authority and the power and the depth of God's word to reach into my soul and to cause me to realize that what I have before me in this book here is nothing less than a miracle because it is the word of God 
delivered in printed form to these eyes right here to correct my heart and bring me into conformity with what He requires and also to reveal to me the truth of my salvation. So all those thoughts are running in my head and have been the backdrop of my study this week. And I hope that you are inspired along the same lines as I have been as we read these verses once again together. Since the psalm is relatively short, I just want to lead you in reading again through it. And we'll begin in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. And when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Drag, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. O oh, save your people, and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd, and carry them forever. An understanding of the nature of God presupposes an absolutely inseparable relationship between His being, His Word, and His works. The holiness and integrity of God by definition declare an immutable, that is unchangeable, continuity between His Word, that which He proclaims and declares, His deeds, that which He works and accomplishes in history, and his character, the sum total of his being. You cannot understand Psalm 28 as it is declared before us today without coming to the realization that there is an inseparable relationship between the nature and character of God and what he does and what he says. Why do we need to be reminded of something that is such a basic truth? Well, one reason is, is because we... And our sin and discontinuity and disparity of thought are often separated from our confession to what is in our heart. We are wired to lie. We are wired to mislead. We are wired to deceive. Most every day, to some degree, what we put on as a face and a facade for the world to see is vastly different than the character of our heart just on a daily a sense of measuring our will and intentions as against our expressed will and intentions. But never let this fallen human condition color our view of the nature of God. And then we have the Word of God to correct 
anything that might be missing in our understanding of Him. Now, this probably should go without saying. If God is God, does it only stand to reason that His Word, His works, and His character agree? Well, of course. But don't take that for granted in this day and age. There are so many people who claim some sort of relationship with God, but stand distant from His Word. When His Word declares, this is righteousness, often we beg to differ. We like the idea of God, perhaps, if He is something like Tony referred to, a cosmic Santa Claus, a slot machine in Vegas, and after all, He's so rich, and if I beg enough or arrange my cars just right, perhaps He'll give me what I need, quite comfortable and attracted to an idea of a God like that. But when we open His Word and we see that the holiness and immutable character of God demands perfection in order for the terms of His favor to visit our life, that is a God that some people decide in their heart they will never serve. Nevertheless, He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what are we, sinful, fallen, fickle creatures to do in light of this reality that what the Word of God says is who the King of Kings is? Well, I'll tell you, David's first response, and it ought to be ours too, is to cry out for mercy. Point number one in this message, four divisions of Psalm 28. Point number one is please for mercy. In verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. This is the response from the voice of a sinner to a God who is unchanging when he recognizes that his voice in Scripture will never change and is exactly who he is. Psalm 128 verses 2 through 5 is a great cross-reference. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but listen as I read. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. I'm sorry, one, that was 128. I was looking for Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down towards your holy temple. Notice the similarity in language. David has said in Psalm 28, towards your most holy sanctuary, I lift up my hands. He says, and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Do you see the inseparable relationship between the name that is the renown, the character, the reputation, the identity of God and His word? Both are exalted. They're inseparable. They're on equal plane. Verse 3, on the day I called you, I called, you answered me, my strength. Of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Another reference from the Psalms to remind us that the Word of God declares the unchanging character of God, and we must conform, we must bow and surrender to the truth therein contained. Remember in the book of John, right at the beginning, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And here we see again the declaration of Jesus Christ, the introduction of Him in this gospel as the Word incarnate. 
The Word was there at the beginning. It was incarnate in Jesus. It's inseparable from Him. The Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word is God. The inseparable relationship between what the Bible declares and what the essence of God is understood to be. And then one more verse to underscore the biblical, the vast biblical uh, evidence for this point this morning that we're introducing in this psalm is in John, uh, John 14, verse 15, in this very simple statement that Jesus makes, those who love me keep my commandments. There is no relationship with Christ that has any meaning according to Jesus that's different from the relationship to His Word. That is to say, Faithfulness to Jesus equals faithfulness to His Word. Love for Jesus is not love for a concept, an idea in our, in our heads, a figment of our imagination, a preconceived notion of who we'd like Him to, meet, like him to be. No, loving Jesus means hanging on to His every word. And understanding our relationship to Him can be measured by our relationship to our desire to keep His commandments. It is cut and dry in Scripture. There is no way around it. Now, as we continue to read in Psalm 28, this chapter beautifully and poetically further illuminates how the scales of divine justice weigh people according to their relationship to the word and works of Almighty God as well as the relationship they have to their own words and works. And here, with that introduction, I'll return you to point number one, pleas for mercy. In verses one and two, reading again, David says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. First of all, we have the voice of the sinner. Remember the title, voice and hands. The imagery of hands and what they represent. The poetic imagery of voice and what it represents. David returns to again and again. He refers to the voice and the hands of himself, a sinner crying out for mercy. He refers to the voice and the hand of God, immutable in His holiness, the declaration of the fullness of His character. He refers to the voice and the hands of the sinner who is caught in his sin and deception, the hypocrite, as we soon see under point number two. But first and foremost, David recognizes in light of God and His unchanging character, the only response that is really due or that only response that the circumstance warrants is that the voice of the sinner would cry out for mercy. Please for mercy. And David knows that his future, his eternal future, hinges on God's response. What will God's voice be responding to his pleas for mercy? David calls out, he says, My rock, be not deaf to me. If the word of God does not answer David in his condition, if there's a deafness in the heavens, as it were, if he is not assured that he has the Almighty's ear, what will be his state? 
He says, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. I remember standing on a street corner in my less mature days, however, trying to do my best to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, arguing with proud sinners, you know, coffee shop philosopher types who feel arrogant in their own understanding to resist the voice of God. And I remember talking to this one individual and he said, I would believe in God if he would but speak to me. And so I asked him, what would convince you to believe in God? How would he have to reveal himself? And he said, I don't know, burning bush, a miracle. And again, Tony's words and his testimony come to mind. If creation itself is not testimony enough, you in the hardness of your heart will continue to have what sounds like to you a deaf heaven. This man was presenting his terms fine. Arms crossed, the posture of critical distance, hesitation, presuming as if to judge the Almighty. If you're really real, why don't you show me an experience that would convince this critical mind? Do you think that posture before an Almighty God will ever yield you an answer? David never assumed that kind of posture when he presented himself before the justice of an almighty God. His posture was one of abandon and surrender as he lifted up his hands to the mercy seat and cried, mercy, please for mercy. If you remain deaf to me, I go down like those to the pit. I will die. The silence of heaven that David spoke about was not the silence that presumes God does not exist but the silence that would leave him without any voice in his heart to the reality that an almighty God has made a way for a sinner to find favor in his presence. Don't leave me in this condition. Mercy, mercy is the plea. That ought to be the baby infant cry of every believer, and I believe it is. When we come to the gospel, how do we know that we've arrived? When the heart of our cry to Almighty God is something in the spirit that David describes here, pleas for mercy, an abandonment. When we see those hands lifted in this imagery in verse 2 particularly, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. You see the posture of the hands there lets go everything else that you had retained. He lets go of the plow which you thought would provide for your future. And let's go of the checkbook, which would ensure that your life is solvent. And let's go of relationships in this world that may have been an, idolatry, an idol to you and prevented you from seeing that your only fulfilling and lasting relationship would be to be accepted by the Almighty. All of those things are let go. And the gesture of surrender and abandon cries out mercy and reaches towards the mercy seat of God. I am told by other translators, in the original translations, these four words, your most holy sanctuary, in the past have been translated oracle. That is, in the Hebrew, the word there is derived from debar, I believe, to speak. And the word is debir. So there is 
a one-to-one -one equivalency in the Hebrew between God's most holy sanctuary, His mercy seat, and the fact that God's voice speaks to men. In other words, people might just as easily say, cry out on my behalf, O high priest, when you go to the mercy seat, as they would say, cry out to the oracle on my behalf. Why is this language one and the same? Well, it goes back to our understanding of the, that I tried to bring forward at the introduction of this psalm, that the relationship between God and His Word is inseparable. If you go back to Exodus 25, 17 through 22, I'll just read a passage from there very, very quickly for you. You see the schematics and the plan that's laid out for the tabernacle. So here is the purpose and the plans that are delivered to Moses for the mercy seat, building of the same, for the tabernacle, the temple, which would become the temple to house this particular article. And not only the form is given, but also its function. And so in Exodus 25, we begin to see these truths unveiled. If I could find it for you quickly. It's such a, an amazing picture of some of these concept that's, concepts that David is referring to. So again, here in Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22, we read, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with its wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you. Verse 22, Exodus 25. There I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This abiding presence, voice, and word of God is the picture. David cries out with abandonment, pleas of mercy to the oracle, that is the testimony, the word of God, the presence of God among his people. And the record of God's audible presence is further recorded in the law. You can read of it in Numbers 7, 89, when God would reveal himself to Moses and he would give the words that the people's very spiritual and physical livelihood hinged on. It was an inseparable relationship between the character of God and His declared Word. And that's why the mercy seat was called the oracle. It was the conditions of God's favor that the people were to be jealous of, to seek of, and to seek after, and to covet. It was this picture that David referred to when he says, I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Pleas for mercy, verses 1 and 2. Now we move to verses 3 through 5, which describe the portion of the wicked. In verses three, we, verse 3, we read, Do not drag me off with the wicked, 
with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. And again, the voice and the hands are seen as a picture here. Whereas on the one side, those who recognize their sin and their only salvation would be through the mercy of Almighty God, lift up their hands and surrender. Where are the hands of the wicked? The hands of the wicked are in the judgmental arresting hands of God, whose divine justice has served them notice, issued an arrest warrant, and are now dragging them off to appear before the court of His holy justice. And as they're drug off, just like we see these pictures you know, most wanted type TV shows where ardent, or hardened criminals are thrown up against the police car. They're clasped with handcuffs. They're forcefully shoved in the car and presumably they will go and they are on their way to stand before the court of justice. They have committed what in some cases will be their last crime as a quote free man. And now there is a reckoning. And here it is, the picture. Where would you rather have your hands? Lifted up in surrender, directed towards the mercy of Almighty God, or clasped in the almighty handcuffs of judgment on that final day and then drugged before the bar of the Lord Jesus Christ and have to testify that you rejected His free gift of His blood as the merciful substitutionary payment for your sins. A stark contrast indeed. After these pleas of mercy, David pronounces the portion of the wicked. Notice the relationship, not only where the hands of the wicked are locked in the judgment of Almighty God, but notice their relationship to their words, the relationship between their words and their own deeds. It says in the second half of verse 3, These the wicked who speak peace with their neighbors, while evil is in their hearts. There is a disparity that they remain in, in prideful arrogance between what they say and where their heart is at. They are the hypocrites that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 6. They say, I am well, I am fine, I am good, I am holy. Just look at me against the curve of humanity. I am better than my neighbor. And this hypocritical statement where they are saying I am justified by my own works is so far removed from their heart that it will stand against them as testimony to their well-deserving hellfire judgment one day unless they repent. You wonder in Scripture why such particular judgmental attention is paid towards those who are hypocrites. You know, Jesus was fine hanging out with publicans and sinners, those that you and I might be ashamed to brush shoulders with because their reputation is such that you wouldn't want to be included in the same environment or the same sentence with them. And Jesus was quite fine hanging out with people of that sort. They were, in fact, the social outcasts and many times in His providence, the poor in spirit. But there were those that Jesus refused to fellowship with. He cast them from His presence. And he declared them to be akin to nests of snakes. And they were the ones whose words and their heart were so far removed that they were hypocrites trying to justify themselves in the, by other means than throwing themselves at the mercy of Almighty God. And here's the contrast. The portion of the wicked, the portion of the hypocrites on that final day 
is something that is so starkly different from what we will receive if we humble ourselves before the grace of God that we best take notice. Now David goes on in verse 4, Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands and render them their due reward. There's these stark and uncanny pictures of justice that we have historically in the Word of God. And a lot of them were brought to bear in my study as I was thinking about this and reading some commentary. You know, we think about Pharaoh and his condemnation of the firstborn of the Hebrews. He was commanding the midwives to tell them which child, you know, which these, these children, and then he would pronounce a death sentence over them, and he was murdering innocent Hebrews. Or there came a day when he was answerable for that work, and his firstborn died. And the proportional justice was served in stark degree in this life. That is somewhat of an, of an anomaly as far as this life is concerned. But let me tell you, there is nary a man, a woman, who stands before the judgment seat of God, uncovered by the blood of Jesus Christ, who will not be paid in accordance with their works. And the filthy rags that they have to offer will serve them a hellfire sentence, and every single one will be given according to their works. What hope does there remain for us? We know the hope in Jesus Christ. But listen to this qualifying statement in verse 5 as we move through the portion of the wicked. It's not just because their works are evil that they will be rejected on that final day. But in verse 5, we have this because statement. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more. You see, in the first half of this section, the portion of the wicked, every single one of us is indicted. There is a huge disparity, as broad as hell itself, between the confession or presentation of who we are and the wretchedness, the reprobate state of our heart and sin. However, if we have regard for the works of the Lord and we trust the works of His hands, then... That's what separates the sheep from the goats. It is not so much because these people were hypocrites, but it's because they never realized they were hypocrites that they are thrown towards the portion of the wicked. Because they had no regard for the works of the Lord or the works of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more on that final day. It is not so much the relationship between their voice and their hands that condemns them as finally their relationship to the voice and the hand of Almighty God. Because the hypocrite who dies in his sin had no regard for God's authoritative word and no regard for his miraculous works, neither the works of the Lord nor the works of his hands convinced him, caused him to bow his knee or humble. This is why he will be torn down and built up no more. In these categories of indictment, we see two aspects, again, as so common in Scripture. If it were not enough for the Lord to reveal His works in history, He has done, and through redemption, He has done so in creation. The works of His hands reminds us of Psalm chapter 8. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Psalm chapter 8, 
Those stars are the work of his very fingertips, but the wicked have no regard for such things. The works of the Lord, that is the redemption of his people. Psalm 78 gives us such a great summary chronicle. Redeeming Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh, parting the Red Seas, creating a path towards their promised land and their exodus from that tyranny. Supplying them bread for meat in the wilderness. Guidance, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. These are real historical works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the real historical work of Jesus Christ, His death on a tree, which was symbolized in the old and the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, happened some 2,000 years ago. And it was that real historical event that is the work of the Lord and redemptive history. And we must bow before these truths. We must regard them. We must recount them. And we must stake our confidence in them. And when we cry out for mercy, it is the mercy that is represented in the cross. And it is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ evident on the third day that we celebrate this, this Lord's day. And it is His authority over all power in heaven and on earth that was assumed at His ascension that ought to fill our hearts with any confidence that we stand in right relationship with Almighty God, that we love His voice and we love the works of His hands. Now, what should this move us to offer? Point number three, praiseworthy speech. In verses 6 and 7, David shifts from this condemnation of the wicked and yet a veneration of God's name and His justice to a celebration of praise for a God who is powerful and does answer prayer. Verses 6 and 7, Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. David has pleaded for mercy in verse 2, and now he praises because he knows he has an assurance that his voice has been heard, that the heavens have not been deaf to his cry. He will not be like those who go down to the pit. Because why? In verse 7, because the Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. Suddenly as this course of worship is unfolding and as the thought process of David is revealed to us, we see after he has gone through these stages of thinking and confessing and reckoning with the reality of God's justice, there springs forth from his confession a spontaneous song of praise. Suddenly the speech of the author of this poem is used in a way that glorifies the works of the Lord. And the speech of David, his voice is sanctified according to its original design, created intent and purpose to give glory and serve the pleasure of the Almighty. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. What a great definition of worship. What a great prayer and standard to hold ourselves accountable to, that the things that we declare and the things that we're passionate about the things that we unite our affections to would be united with the praises, the work of the hands, and the testimony of the voice of Almighty God. 
Today, perhaps, in our popular expressions of worship, we've somehow lost something of the reverence of this notion. Many songs we sing are relatively self-absorbed. And while David had certainly his moments of confession, they were almost always resolved in this God-glorifying reverential honor and praise. And so let it be on the lips of you, saints, that your speech would begin to serve its designed purpose, to be a vehicle to declare and proclaim the voice of God, and to celebrate and recall, as we even sang this morning from Psalm 118, the worth, the works, the attributes, recount the deeds of the Lord. This is a vision for worship. This is a worthy duty for us to embrace as blood-bought believers. Finally, in the fourth point and final point of this message, we have a shift to the people of God. Up to this point, David has kept his prayer relatively personal, using the first person, my pleas for mercy, my shield. He's opened with this intense personal prayer to you, Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me. But he doesn't close without again reminding us and reminding himself, if you will, of the greater, bigger picture. He says in verses 8 and 9, The Lord is the strength of His people, now including all of those who are within the favor of the Lord. Everyone who joins his plea and lifted hands toward the mercy seat now joins David in psalm. The intensely personal heart cry of a lone sinner now joins the assembly of God's people in corporate praise. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. And then verse 9, it's as if we can hear thousands of voices as the Levitical priests lift up their song and their instrument and the crowds gather around the tabernacle and then the temple and the, and the solemn assembly and the celebratory praise is lifted up to heaven as we saw the picture of worship in numbers detailed and ordered in the Old Testament. And verse 9, the chorus joins with, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forward. One of my favorite things to do as I think about these psalms is to imagine how they may have been orchestrated. And perhaps in this particular worship service, in my imagination, it opens with a solo and finishes with the choir in a noise that fills the room or fills the air, depending on where that worship service would take place, with the collective adoration of the assembly and God's people. I pray that one day these chairs are full, but I pray that I never let, that God never lets, false motives get in the way of why they ought to be. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had but one more voice to join in song because He is worthy and because He has spoken and because He has worked redemptively in history and because He's delivered His truth to us. Would that we had one more voice next Sunday to join us in that chorus. Would that these chairs were full. That is what we are designed to do. As David closes and includes the people of God in his heartfelt petition, 
his declaration, and his announcement of worthy praise and speech, he acknowledges that there is a corporate dimension to his worship, and there is a corporate dimension to God's plans. He is saving for himself a people from every tribe and nation. He is the Father, the Heavenly Father of every adopted son and daughter, all of the elect blood-bought by the shed redemptive power dripping from the brow of his son. David acknowledges this, and he also uses a few words to distinguish us from the rest of those who as of yet have not bowed before the voice and hand of the Almighty. He says that this group, this assembly, and this throng is his people, but not just that, his anointed. I think he could be speaking of himself here, and probably is, inasmuch as his role as anointed king, a representative of something, of God's revelation to the people, but also it can be said in the greater context of Scripture that God's anointing has rested upon every one of his blood-bought elect. So here we are, his people, his anointed. And it goes on in verse 9 to describe us as his heritage. That is, those counted worthy to bear the name of Almighty God. And I like to include a fourth reference there by implication, his sheep. Because after all, as the last sentence declares, be their shepherd and carry them forever. I can so relate to those words. And it reminds us of Psalm 23. We are his sheep and he is our shepherd. And here once again in the closing of this psalm, which emphasizes the voice and the hands, we think of the role of shepherd in this area of Palestine at this time. And it was a role that demanded the attention to the nth degree of the steward of that flock. There weren't easy pens and borders to keep the sheep in. The pens and borders was the watchful eye of the one who truly cared about every member of his flock, who kept in his mind their names, who knew their idiosyncrasies, who would be willing to, as we mentioned before, break their leg if necessary to teach them to stay close to his watchful care. This is the picture of our shepherd and the picture of us, his sheep under him. And may he carry us forever. Finally, as David closes his ode here, his beautiful psalm, celebrating the glory of God as revealed in his voice, his word, his works, and his hand. It's a confession of dependence, absolute dependence. May God carry us forever. And may we confess with David, with our voice, that our absolute dependency is on the hand of God to carry us through all the way to glory. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that though your word is sharp and direct, and it has a way of revealing to us every area that as of yet stands unsanctified with your holiness. We also thank you that it delivers to us the way of salvation. Salvation in the first place of faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to ransom us from the effect of sin. But also faith that the same spirit that raised you from the dead ever lives and works in us 
to continue that good work of sanctification. May you work in us, Lord Jesus, more pleased for mercy if we find ourselves perhaps even outside the sheepfold this morning as only you know if there are people who are not born again fellowshipping with us today. And if, it is that, if that is the case, may your word, your authoritative word, move them to cry out to the mercy seat of Jesus Christ for your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would always remind us what we are saved from, the portion of the wicked, so that our praise, Lord Jesus, might be worthy a sweet-smelling sacrifice and incense to you. And finally, that we would joyfully assemble whenever you call us, Lord Jesus, as this Sabbath day has afforded us the opportunity to acknowledge your glorious work and to celebrate Jesus Christ, who alone, who alone saves and sanctifies. And it's in that holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.